0: It's a textile trade that's been called 200 years of secrecy and lies. It's played a central role in wars, slavery, affordable clothing, textile rationing, growing the finest rhubarb in the world and the wealth of West Yorkshire. Its secrets have been smuggled across oceans and changed laws and it has a terrible reputation. The machine
1: that made shoddy had already been kind of given the name, the devil, but the term devil's dust sort of took off and began to be used not just for the dust that blew up, you know, when the the good was being produced, it started to be applied across the board. So shoddy became itself kind of excessive and useless and dirty and harmful uh, expression of all of the horrors of industrializing England generally.
0: But in the age of climate change, Shoddy has become something that holds tremendous promise for the future. A future in which our clothes don't impose such a burden on the planet.
2: The world's crying out for it. And we're determined to uh, not just protect the the industry and the craft, but to re-energise it. And we want to learn new techniques as well as bringing the best of the old. We want new generations people that uh, can bring new technologies and new ideas, to train new generations to, to keep this trade going and to do it better than we can.
0: Welcome to Haptic and Hughes' third series of podcasts called The Chatter of Cloth. I'm Joe Andrews and I'm a hand weaver interested in what textiles tell us about our lives and communities. Come with me in this episode and explore the wonderful world of Shoddy and her sister, Mungo. The word Shoddy means many things, but in textile terms it describes a cloth that includes a mix of new and recycled fibres. Shoddy is recycled knitted cloth and Mungo is recycled woven fabric. We pick up this story on the eve of the American Civil War with a good-looking young man dressed in a smart uniform.
1: So we're looking at a carte de visite, which was a kind of almost like a photographic postcard uh, that was you know, becoming increasingly common in the 1850s and 1860s. Uh, and it's a carte de visite produced in 1861 showing a very young Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., Uh, in uniform on his way or just before he kind of went out with the 20th Regiment to join the Union Army in the American Civil War. And Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. would go on much later in his life to become an extremely important and influential member of the United States Supreme Court. But at the moment that this photograph is taken, he's in his early 1920s, Um, He's just completed his uh, undergraduate school at Harvard. Uh, He's the son of a very famous and kind of widely published doctor and and writer, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. In this really beautiful photographic image, he's seated with a kind of black curtain, sort of a black velvet curtain behind him. Uh, wearing his uniform, a kind of nice looking uniform with brass buttons kind of rising from his from his waist up rather high on his neck. Uh, He's got these epaulettes. Uh, He's got his rifle, sort of a a cute cap. His hair is neatly parted on the side um, and he he looks dignified and uh, ready to do good for his country.
0: Hannah Rose Shell is a historian of technology, a filmmaker and an associate professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. She spent much of the last 15 years studying second-hand clothes and recycled textiles such as Shoddy. The uniform Oliver Wendell Holmes was wearing, like most military clothing of the day, is highly likely to have been made of a mix of recycled fibres and new wool. In other words, shoddy cloth. In this case, probably good quality shoddy cloth, because this was a well-to-do family. But his uniform points us to the fact that when the American Civil War began, the North had a problem, a big problem. It needed to get thousands of men into uniform as quickly as possible, and that wasn't easy.
1: There was a need on the part of the of the government and of the North for a huge amount of, just kind of accoutrements of uniforms, blankets, jackets, pants. You know all sorts of, of things. And there were a number of different big issues that arose. First of all, a lot of the textile industry at that point. Um, a lot of materials were being produced. The Cottons were all being grown in the southern states. And during the Civil War, that sort of source for supplies was cut off to the north. Uh, meanwhile, the northern um, textile mills and the woolen industry was just completely overwhelmed by the need for, for uniforms. So a lot of, actually a lot of uniforms were being produced or started to be produced by some of the same textile firms and and mills that had prior to the war been producing cloth for some of the slave plantations.
0: The North didn't make it easier for itself. It had previously established taxes on the import of British wool to protect its own industry. But it did have a small, shoddy industry.
1: Prior to the the American Civil War, this shoddy material uh, was at times it was imported fr- from the united kingdom but otherwise was produced primarily in the north in the, in the kind of wool producing regions and it was used on the one hand for Army blankets, army uniforms, clothing, suits for a kind of, you know, working class community. But one thing it was also used extensively for, it was used to to produce these kind of bolts of what was generally referred to as slave cloth. Several textile mills in in New England um, and in Pennsylvania would take these sort of secondhand woolen rags or textile clippings from the new woolen industry would shred them, would kind of respin them, and then would, would blend them with cotton uh, to create these kind of bolts of, of union cloth, which were also called slave cloth.
0: The problem was that the mills couldn't produce any of this cloth fast enough, and they didn't have the materials to hand to do it. So here's what they did. So
1: Abraham Lincoln's first kind of declaration of of war triggered, as I said, this kind of overwhelming demand for uniforms and the kind of related paraphernalia. Uh, And and it it led to this kind of overflow, I should say, of of these uh, materials and fabrics and uniforms that weren't simply made of shoddy, right? That weren't simply made of a kind of recycled Material which theoretically could have been uh, can be of great quality, but really low end, sort of shoddy materials. Like they weren't even actually wool, so it would sort of be a dust that pretended to be wool, but might actually have been paper. So really, really um, low end goods. Which is to say that you have all of these, you know, these soldiers, and they're out in the woods, and it's wet, and their blankets, according to the press, according to journals their blankets and their uniforms were kind of literally dissolving off of them.
0: This is one of the reasons, often overlooked, that the Civil War was the deadliest conflict in American history. There are other reasons too, of course, that the uniforms the Union troops wore were not fit for purpose.
1: Some of the images that have become so iconic in remembering that the war are pictures of Union soldiers, their corpses, kind of spread on battlefields, sort of you know, battlefields littered with dead bodies, uh, in which we can actually see these kind of deteriorating uniforms. So the war itself resolved with the Union Army winning, despite you know a huge number of, of casualties. Uh, and in the post-war period, from a kind of from the from the perspective of textiles, the word shoddy from that point forward would continue to have these kind of murky connotations.
0: Until late on in the Civil War, there was one item that would have been made of good quality woolen cloth on the battlefield, and that was the American flag. It was made in Britain from a fabric called bunting, something of an irony that the colonial power against which America had successfully rebelled was the provider of the new country's flag for nearly 90 years. But no one else had the luxury of high-quality woolen cloth like that, and there was a huge public scandal. The press was outraged and campaigned for reform. A number of articles survive, including this song. And
1: it's a song sort of told from three perspectives. Uh, An army contractor a kind of higher up in the army and a soldier. I'll just share a a little bit of of the lyrics because I think it gives a good taste. The coat contractors gave us were of shoddy cloth of gray, badly made and badly fashioned, much too large or small for men, only for a day we wore them. And they came to pieces then, bad the buttons, bad the breeches, breeches only fit for mending. Oh, the ripping, oh, the darning. Oh, the tailoring unending.
0: There were congressional inquiries, talk of criminal proceedings for war profiteering and reform. These investigations became a model for future inquiries into contracting scandals. And the word shoddy escaped into the wider world and acquired new meanings.
1: In the popular press and in the kind of popular imagination, the scandal surrounding this Let's say shoddy, shoddy, led to this word shoddy becoming extremely um, popular and dominant in all sorts of different ways. So shoddy became a name, a kind of stand in for anybody who was seen to be kind of nouveau riche, somebody who who didn't have old money, but who had new money, which they may have gotten through, you know, the textile industry. For example, they would be called like a Miss Shoddy or a Princess Shoddy or a Mr. Shoddy. Oftentimes, uh, Shoddy also became a name given to, to immigrant communities and immigrant groups that, you know, might have gotten in or been in these textile industries. A lot of Jews had come in as immigrants into the U.S., were in the textile industry and sort of would be encompassed in the kind of Mr. Shoddy, Mrs. Shoddy. These shoddy people often had um, Eastern European or sort of Germanic-sounding accents. Certainly that was a way in which this word shoddy took on these kind of larger-than-life kind of connotations.
0: But there's also a way of looking at this which says that America was lucky to have this technology at all. The shoddy process was invented in Britain, in West Yorkshire, in the early 19th century. There are many stories about how it came about, but the man usually credited with this is Benjamin Law of Batley. There's a blue plaque to him outside Batley Library. He put together a process in which old clothes were torn apart by powerful spiked machines called devils. The resulting fibre could then be blended with new wool, spun into yarn, And woven into cloth. It was an ingenious way to recycle old clothing and its secrets were closely protected by law. That is, until a blacksmith who'd worked with the inventors of the machine tried to make his fortune.
1: One of the blacksmiths who had worked with the inventors of the shoddy machine seems to have kind of smuggled a prototype of this devil machine out of the United Kingdom doing so in defiance of laws prohibiting the export of british machinery or blueprints at that time what's said or what's reported is that he shipped it out through liverpool and was sending it to a contractor to to a contact he had in new york declaring it falsely some kind of rice threshing machine uh, as a way to kind of cover up that in in fact he was he was kind of smuggling out this secret united you know uk invention He had intended to follow his machine to kind of take the next boat out and therefore be able to to meet up with his smuggled machinery and I'm sure in his mind become some kind of shoddy millionaire in the United States. But he, in fact, was caught and arrested by British customs. The shoddy picker itself had been shipped and, you know, somehow was able to connect with his contact. The machine ended up kind of making its way to New England and and seeding shoddy manufacturing industry in, in New England, in the United States.
0: Back in West Yorkshire, the shoddy process had transformed places like Batley and Dewsbury. Here's John Parkinson, a man with shoddy cloth in his
2: blood. When Benjamin Law first sort of had his discovery in the early 1800s, the towns surrounding the area were very small people were weaving and spinning in their homes hanging their cloth out in the fields to dry after after being washed after finishing that was the sort of extent of the trade it was pre-industrial revolution as well so it was very early on and and, and they were competing with other areas in the country even there was a a trade down south in the west country and in different places that were woolen manufacturers and they, they didn't have really any advantage over any of those and that was where the difference occurred. The big advantage was when they were able to develop the shoddy material that could be included in a cloth. And from very small hamlets with just a few people, Batley, Dewsbury, Osset, Morley, all those towns, and then into Huddersfield, they grew massively, both in population as people went for the jobs, and also the entrepreneurs that were starting up with machinery, And as the the industrial revolution sort of took hold, they were able to um, develop more machinery and more efficient practices of powering the machines. And so all of a sudden, or a certain type of woolen cloth was becoming more affordable because it was cheaper. And the forces started to use materials that were made with shoddy cloth. So as well as getting uniforms back, huge amounts of reclaimed material were used uh, during times, to, to make clothes, uh, for the forces, especially when they couldn't get enough wool or get it over and it was cheaper. So, um, there's a huge, uh, trade in, in, in all that. And, and the historians said when the cannons roared, then the chimneys boomed or the mills boomed. And there certainly were boom time, uh, boom times to make cloth that was cheaper. So that it was a hugely influ- influential, uh, to the area and that, Cloth wasn't just sold to the area it was sold across across the world it was said that largely because of some of that trade hugely influential that there were more Rolls Royces in the Huddersfield district than there were in London for a while and all built on that kind of a uh, on you know the old idea that uh, there's brass in muck and brass being across the, the Yorkshire term for for money
0: John was born to the shoddy trade And some of his strongest childhood memories are helping his dad when he set up his own shoddy mill in 1970.
2: It goes back, I guess, to to the earliest times I can um, remember. So in in 1970, he uh, remortgaged the house. And I remember him sort of talking to me, even though I was only 10, And telling me all about it and and typically as a 10 year old being sort of a bit disinterested (laughs) not fully realized in the enormity of what he was doing he always said if this goes wrong we'll be living in a tent in a field and that that kind of sounded quite exciting to me at the time and my weekends and school holidays were spent uh helping out particularly in the uh, first year or two when we were trying to keep the wage bill down and everything even though uh, i've been around before then around the mills before i was 10 soon became used to treading bales so in the sorting room where they were sorting um what we called rags but today probably called pre-loved garments you know post-consumer wool and uh you climb up into the bales that were mounted with ropes on the old wood wood beams and uh and you you'd tread down to make a, a nice firm bale the trick was always treading to the corners and the middle of look after itself. And they used to go from one bale to the other as they were emptying baskets of different materials in. And then uh, later on, uh, helping out with blending and that's laying materials next to the uh, fiber opening machines, what we call rag pulling. So pulling is the, 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 the process of recovering fibers from uh, garments and, uh, and, and all the other jobs in the, in the prison um, and in the summertime, sorting outside, which was lovely, but in the wintertime, not so great. Moving sort of skips with metal wheels across uh, cobbled yards while the snow was falling on you. Uh, I remember one of my dad's uh, friends looking out from an upstairs office window uh, to us doing this as young kids. Instead, it looked like a scene out of Dickens.
0: And John says that in Britain, too, there was a sense of shame around shoddy.
2: I think that probably there's always been a sense of shame in some respects or a little bit of kind of playing it down amongst the people that worked within the trade. It wasn't the best chat up line on a Friday night to say that you were a ragger or a, or a rag grinder or any of that kind of stuff. Your, your wages would be low. The work would be in poor conditions, um, often dirty with the machinery, dangerous, uh, that wasn't guarded way back in the day. And it certainly wasn't the most glamorous trade. And even within society, um if you were dealing with buying, wearing uh second hand clothes, what we call hand-me-downs, that was something of a bit of a, a shame. You wouldn't necessarily talk about that, whereas today, uh you're cool, you're trendy if you buy buying clothing that's that's been worn and used before. So very very much a different attitude within society
0: and that secrecy extended to the manufacturers. And John says there was always a great deal of cloak and dagger about the entire operation.
2: Many of the woolen manufacturers would try and hide the idea that they were using reclaimed uh, wool to try and elevate their status as only using new wool, and therefore their prices are higher, even if they were sneaking a bit, nearly everybody was sneaking a bit of reclaimed material in and there are story there are stories of uh woolen manufacturers even having their bales delivered at nightfall undercover with uh, sort of coded descriptions on the bales and so that people wouldn't realize they were using reclaimed material and uh, and also stories of competitors following the wagons round. people tell me that still happens following the wagons round to see who who's selling to who and, and what's happening so that, that there was this sort of idea of of it being almost like an undercover thing, and to a large extent, apart from the people that live in the area across the world, many people weren't aware that this activity w- was taking place. And even today, even though there are other parts of the world where this happens, so many times I'm, I, that I speak to people and they say, "Wow, I never realised this was possible. This is amazing, and it's two hundred years old." So it is a kind of a it is a, a thing that's been. Um, cloaked in secrecy.
0: One of the reasons for the secrecy is that in the 19th century, Batley resembled a vision of the underworld. Here's Hannah Rose. Absolutely.
1: There are these, these rather vivid descriptions of the railroad tracks at Batley Station in the 1850s. Uh, and the railroad tracks being piled up with rags, with dust, uh, and then with the kind of glimmers of gold, the eyes of the merchants doing the kind of the buying and the selling, um, so the kind of wealth, the glitz, uh, but also the dust and the filth and the dirt and the coal uh, that that was needed to produce all of those things. The rag industry in the late nineteenth century was was uh, was was very successful and produced a lot of wealth for for those in Batley. There, in the major church. The Methodist church in Batley, almost all of the stained glass windows, you know, are devoted and were kind of funded by these different kind of shoddy families.
0: The connection between shoddy and dirty rags was also a problem. In 1860, Samuel Jubb published a book called The History of the Shoddy Trade. And here's how he described Batley in an extract read by Bill Taylor. This is the famous rag capital, a tatter metropolis, whither every beggar in Europe sends his cast-off clothes to be made into sham broadcloth for cheap gentility, of moth-eaten coats, frowsy jackets, reeky linen, effusive cotton and old worsted stockings. This is the last destination, reduced to filament, A greasy pulp by mighty toothed cylinders, the much-vexed fabrics re-enter life in the most brilliant forms. Descriptions like this helped form a connection between shoddy and moral hazard, which were exploited by a vocal anti-shoddy movement.
1: Because the machine that made shoddy had already been kind of given the name the devil, this devil's dust referred to all the dust that blew off. But the term devil's dust sort of took off and began to be used not just for the kind of the waste, the dust that blew up, you know, when that when the good was being produced, it started to be applied across the board. So shoddy became itself just a kind of of a dust, a kind of excessive and useless and dirty and harmful uh, Expression of all of the horrors of industrializing England generally, um, and so Devil's Dust actually became a way uh, and, a, and a and a topic that would be brought up by a lot of the the Chartist and the Chartist movement in the 1840s in the UK uh, as a way to just talk about how horrible it, sort of industrialism was in general the sort of way in which that the shoddy industry kind of exemplified everything that was bad about these, these petty capitalists. These new companies, these factory owners needed to be controlled. And these sort of actually rather florid descriptions of shoddy mills and of the conditions of shoddy production began to be invoked as a way to kind of talk about factories more generally, and being unsafe, being unsanitary. Shoddy began to be criticized within that context and began to exemplify the worst of of that kind of situation.
0: Despite this, shoddy was widely made and worn in the 19th and 20th centuries. And depending on the mix, it could deliver something flimsy, giving us a sense of why shoddy is a name for something badly made. Or it could deliver... An excellent hard-wearing cloth. It was used for many kinds of official uniforms. Train conductors, soldiers, sailors, nurses, policemen and firemen. All wore shoddy, usually without knowing. And over time the industry changed. Here's John Parkinson again.
2: They used to say that the the birds used to fly backwards in battle so something didn't get get in their eyes and all that kind of stuff. Until it cleaned, over the years, started to clean up its act. Materials got cleaner, the factories got cleaner, and, uh, and, and people got better at using their waste.
0: But the entire shoddy industry sank into decline in the second half of the 20th century, as the mills in Yorkshire closed and the world moved
2: on. Fashions began to change. and People wanted weight materials. Uh, as they got warmer homes when you're spinning finer then reclaim materials have limitations with how fine they can spin and so there were issues there people started to use synthetics so we had polyester duvets instead of wool blankets and the wool blanket trade was really big especially because those are heavier yarns too the introduction of synthetics um had a big effect and other fashion items like denim it was also a time when, or as, as time increased, and people started to learn how to do uh, to reclaim materials overseas, they could do it cheaper, as health and safety meant that it was becoming more expensive for UK mills to use reclaimed materials, and they had to work with higher value materials to compete. I don't think that the English, uh, UK, Yorkshire mills perhaps kept up with technology and Working with reclaimed materials can sometimes present different challenges too. That uh, perhaps it's easier to work with new fibers. And little by little, for lots of reasons, as I say, people used to have travel rugs in, you know, over the uh, on buses and trams, and then they got cars and they got heaters in the cars, and all those kinds of things for warm clothing Uh, and formal wear started to decline for those reasons and many more. The shoddy trade began to decline, and mills started to close. but mills were closing that didn't use shoddy. There was a general decline in the high labor intensive industries in all the heavy industries uh, in the u k began to decline so so for lots of reasons, that happened until two thousand the year two thousand, the last traditional a uh, shoddy manufacturer closed.
0: John was working in his dad's company, and things were difficult.
2: We were sort of deciding whether it was it was you know worth carrying on. Business had got so low. Dad got ill, and he, we lost dad. He died, and so we were left with well, we've lost our leading light. We've uh, we, we were in this situation where we're thinking about closing down. We'll either have to close, or we'll have to find a way of staying open. But we've wrapped our brains until one time we had that kind of a uh, a eureka moment whereby we said well we've just been in supermarket and we've seen all this cardboard and this other stuff as early days it's late 80s and uh it's got a trademark on it or some mark on it that's promoting it for being recycled it's old cardboard and now it's been made into new cardboard but isn't that what we do and literally <laughs> it might seem it feels stupid but it was like well that's what we do so if it's that's that's good for cardboard why can't it be good for textiles and uh, we, we started to talk to uh, some people and they pointed out that perhaps there's a different thing to uh, as a different cultural sort of uh, connection between what you might put in a cardboard box and what you might wear as clothing and. People were saying, you know, even then, you don't want to be promoting that people have worn it before. And uh, to which I'd say, well, when you use new wool, a sheep's worn it before. So, like, what's the difference?
0: For a time, the business flourished as one of the first companies openly promoting themselves as a recycling venture. They were way ahead of the times and became one of the first to start recycling cashmere, denim and polyester. They supplied yarn to clothing manufacturers and they were a big hit with catalogues from charities like Greenpeace and Oxfam. But it didn't last and in the mid-90s John closed the doors and found another way to make a living as a teacher. You can take a man out of shoddy but you can't take the shoddy out of the man and nearly 30 years later John has decided to give it another go after his daughter told him he held part of the puzzle of how to stop textiles ruining the planet.
2: But I went back and uh, to the trade, and people that I hadn't met, seen for 30 years, uh, the few that were left, and started talking to them. And it was then I found out that there weren't any traditional shoddy manufacturers left. And uh, there'd been a, a generation since the last one in 2000 that had closed, and that the woolen mills, didn't know how to deal with it anymore. There were loads of myths about what was possible and what wasn't possible. And I kind of, there was a a great sadness at that and and also a a desperation that, well, we couldn't get involved now because the infrastructure is not there. At the same time, there was an excitement and an opportunity that, well, there's no competition. So if we could open that up, the market's stronger than ever now maybe we could do this thing again.
0: So it was off to company's House for John to register a new shoddy company, one that has a weird name, Inuio, and a wonderful explanation behind it.
2: I'm always telling the kids about not to give in and tenacity and all that kind of stuff. And the idea that waste materials are not really waste materials, it's a raw material that's limited by our imagination and it can be used for new stuff. But how do you get all that into like a trendy name and uh, i'm not sure whether we managed a trendy name but i'm always telling kids in the yorkshire accent it's never over until it's over which for international listeners is it is never over until it is over and um i went to company's house to start the business thinking i'll make a contract i'll make an acronym and so I got the two took the single eye. it's never over until it's over. And amazingly, somebody had a business very close to that name. So I did the full, it is never over until it's over and put that into the company's house thing. They said, yeah, you're crazy. Nobody else would have a name like that. Before I knew where I was, I'd click the button and our company had become a newbie.
0: At the moment, John's idea has survived the pandemic. He has secured the grants, bought the machines and is ready to make new shoddy. He knows there's a market for it. All he lacks is somewhere to site his machines and run his business. And time is getting short before the offer of funding runs out. Getting to this point has been an enormous effort and risk for him and his family. But his zeal is undimmed.
2: I've given up my uh, my job as a, as, a, as a teacher to focus on this full-time. we been to lots of different uk manufacturers to say we can do this job for you now we can take your waste we can be a service to you both for research and development but for the first time in a generation we can take your waste and repurpose it for you so you can either put it back into your hopper and and use it again or if you haven't got that facility we can make new yarns and fabrics for you to offer as ranges to your customers for waste that previously might have been landfilled burned salt to the waste man and you've no idea where it where it's gone to. We can we can provide this solution for you. This is like such a joyous thing that we can do an it's like so amazing that we're gonna be able to we're gonna be able to provide this service to the UK industry and be back in a trade, be able to follow our passion again.
0: He's not there yet, but the old gleam is back in his eye. This story though has some threads to darn in. Oliver Wendell Holmes survived the Civil War, although he almost died from his injuries. He went on to become a distinguished Supreme Court judge. Over 40 years later, a case came before the court about the transport of mattresses across state lines in the US. Mattresses were usually stuffed with shoddy. The other judges couldn't see a problem but Justice Wendell Holmes could.
1: Oliver Wendell Holmes, who had had this very wrenching uh, and memorable experience as a soldier in the Civil War, had seen firsthand the kind of plight of soldiers having to deal with these very like shoddy, shoddy uniforms, um, was confronted with this case. And it was in 1926, he delivered a kind of searing dissent. The court as a whole, basically decided that there was no problem with interstate commerce in this case and that there wasn't necessarily a problem with the, the cleanliness of the mattresses, which was what um, Oliver Wendell Holmes was really concerned about. and Holmes delivered a, a really searing dissent, basically you know just just decrying even the possibility that shoddy materials could be anything but disease that there was no way to know, that shoddy, that secondhand goods could be anything but but sickly, but ill. It, it seemed that he really had brought over these kind of memories and these associations from the Civil War uh, to, to his attitude and approach towards ruling in, when he was in this very kind of powerful position.
0: And I promised you rhubarb as well. Yorkshire is the producer of the world's finest forced rhubarb, in an area not far from the old shoddy towns called the Golden Triangle. Part of the secret of that rhubarb was the fertiliser that they used on it, which was, of course, nitrogen-rich dust from the old shoddy mills. If John succeeds in getting the space he needs to make shoddy again, then the rhubarb may find a new supply of fertiliser. But for now, he's living on hope, and a vision that he has a way to make a real difference to the planet.
2: Absolutely, the the same kind of joy. I mean, I watch the processes happening right from the the sorting, and then the, what we call pulling, the shredding, the opening up, and then as it goes from blending into carding and spinning, and then making into new stuff, and I'm watching it. And it's it's just a magic show. It's like even though it's all I've known, I still you know, stand and gaze in wonder how can we do how can we turn this stuff into this? How is this happening in front of my eyes? And that you know, just the, the excitement that when you get a new project to work on, a new a new yarn to make, a new colour, and you that just just the the potential, just the you know, being involved with this amazing transformation is, is just a joy and a privilege to be part of.
0: Thanks to Dr. John Parkinson for sharing his passion for Shoddy. If anyone knows of someone who wants to house a new Shoddy business, get in touch with him now. Thanks too to Hannah Rose Shell for her research and expertise. Her book, Shoddy from Devil's Dust to the Renaissance of Rags, is a great read, and you can find it in the Haptic and Hugh Bookshop, as well as a curated selection of the best textile books in print recommended by listeners to this podcast. There are some great presents there, and every purchase helps support this podcast at no extra cost to you. Details of how to access the bookshop are on the Haptic and Hue website at wwwhapticandhuecom forward slash listen. Lastly, thanks to Bill Taylor of the Lark-Rice Partnership who produced and edited this episode. We'll be back next time looking at what samplers tell us about the women and girls who made them and the times they lived in. Thank you for listening and thank you as ever for supporting this podcast via the Buy Me a Coffee button. I appreciate it. I'm going to leave you this time with part of a poem by Walt Whitman, regarded as the Poet Laureate of the American Civil War. Whitman volunteered as a hospital orderly after he had fruitlessly searched for the body of his brother on one of the battlefields. I saw, as in a noiseless dream, hundreds of battle-flags, borne through the smoke of battles and pierced with missiles. I saw them and carried hither and yon through the smoke and torn and bloody, and at last but a few shreds left on the staffs and all in silence, and the staffs all splintered and broken. I saw battle corpses, myriads of them, and the white skeletons of young men, I saw them. I saw the debris and debris of all the slain soldiers of the war. But I saw they were not as was thought. They themselves were fully at rest, they suffered not. The living remained and suffered, the mother suffered, and the wife and the child and the musing comrade suffered and the armies that remained suffered.